Well, uh, good evening, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. Um, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine. And if you're not already a subscriber, there are subscription forms uh, being circulated there, so uh, do fill one in. Um, now, the topic tonight is keeping the head down, quote unquote, question mark. Uh, and we're looking at the Protestant folklore project. Now, when one thinks of folklore study and folklore collecting south of the border, the Protestant community is not normally the first sector of society to spring to mind. A major collecting project been undertaken by the National Folklore Collection, focusing on Irish Protestants as a cultural group, seeks to redress this imbalance. And in this decade of centenaries, what does it tell us about Protestants in independent Ireland? Did the new state live up to the non-sectarian ideals of the 1916 proclamation? Quote, cherishing the children of the nations equally, unquote probably the most misquoted uh, phrase in the, the proclamation, because that, this is what that phrase is about, not about any, all these other issues that people uh, impose upon it. So I'm joined here tonight by uh, Christopher McCarthy of the, the National Folklore Collection, uh, Neil Meehan, uh, uh, head of uh, journalism in Griffith College, uh, Ian Dalton, Trinity College, Dublin, and beside me, Deirdre Nuttall, uh, who's working on this project, uh, an independent uh, scholar, and finally, Maliki Hand uh, of the Lock Crew uh, Centre. Now, um, Chris Stark, can I go to you first? I, I, I reached for my chamber's uh, dictionary. I still have an old dog-eared dictionary. I do it the old way. Uh, I looked up the definition of folklore. So I said, folklore, the study of ancient observances and customs, colon, the notions, beliefs, traditions, superstitions, and prejudices of the common people. Now, are we anywhere, are we anywhere close there? as a definition. We're close enough. I dropped the ancient part and I'd uh, yes, okay. em emphasise that it, folklore is, is a contemporary or a current thing. But yeah, rituals, customs, beliefs, observances, anything that's collective uh, that uh, wh where people share, shared traditions. Um, one neat way of describing it is cultural history. But when I studied uh, and when Deirdre studied uh, folklore in UCD, they always emphasise that you study um, not only the, the verbal art side, that is the storytelling, the songs, the proverbs uh, and the performances, but you study the material culture and <clears throat> one was inseparable from the other. To understand uh, the, the stories, the legends, the shanachas, that's the cultural history people uh, uh, recite, you should understand the context that, that they live in, you know, so... Uh, we take a very broad, a very holistic approach to, to folklore, uh, Tommy, in short. Does that mean that everyone has a folklore? I'm, I'm thinking of the Molière character who was delighted to learn that he'd been speaking prose all his life. <laughs> so, I mean, does, 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 is it an intrinsic aspect of the human condition? It is. Right. It is. It is. And it's generated. New folklore is generated. Folklore is lost. It's mutable. It's not static. It's a changeable um, uh, uh, phenomenon. Okay, tell us about the original uh, folklore project, right? That, that way back in the 40s, whatever. Yeah, um, they <clears throat> Ireland was kind of ahead of the game in, in many respects in the early 20th century. Um, the government of the day, um, Eamon de Valera, God bless him, um, uh, agreed. And the Doyle, in 1935, they voted the princely sum of £100 for every county in Ireland. Uh, annually for the purpose of collecting, archiving, and publishing folklore. 
And I suppose it was... Chris, just, you just interrupt you. Mm. What had been done up to this point? Just curious. I mean, it must have, presumed, presumably yeah. there were bits and pieces being done by individuals, whatever. For in, sure, in for sure. This is very much in the back of people like Douglas Hyde. Um, and who's the, Protestant, of course. Who's Protestant, of course. And other uh, 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 acclaimed uh, writers, Lady Gregory and, of course, William Butler Yeats. Uh, there were many others. And this was part of the literary renaissance. But is this the irony of it? Like they, they, they're, they're very well-known Protestant you know, mm. figures, but they're, but mm. they're collecting basically Catholic folklore. This, this, is, the, this is the contradiction in some ways, uh, because there was an, a, a, a tacit uh, understanding between uh, scholars, whether they be Catholic or Protestant at the time, that it was vital to record the folklore of the common people, as we put it. Mm. And... Uh, because the Irish language was in retreat, um, people like, especially Douglas Hyde, uh, may, went to great lengths to focus efforts on uh, saving as much of the folklore and recording uh, those. And because only in very rare pockets in Ireland did you get Protestants speaking Irish, therefore the bulk of um, the efforts of Douglas Hyde, Lady Gregory and so on, were on Catholics uh, yeah. and, and largely rural Catholic, um, rural Catholics, and most of them in the west of Ireland. And it, I suppose it was a very idealistic um, aspect to, to all of this, you know, that elevated the ordinary man and woman, um, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, it, it, it's a continuation of the Romantic period in many ways. Is it premised on the notion, though, that this is something in decline? Very much so, and that was uh, one of the... When the Folklore of Ireland Society was established in the mid-1920s, Douglas Hyde as its president, um, uh, they, it was sempereat ne pereant, so save, do not allow these things to, to, to be lost. Um, there, there are so many ancient um, rituals, ideas, concepts, knowledge that was in danger of disappearing. So it was very much a collective approach, and it was not... Uh, both Catholics and Protestants because, of course, the Folklore Commission, when it was set up, comprised Catholics and Protestants on its founding board. Liam Price being one of them, uh, um, Osborne Bergen, another fine scholar. Um, their drive was to record as much of folklore through the medium of Irish. Uh, certainly in the initial years of the Commission, for the first ten or so years, their focus was on, you know, the dying... Uh, uh, elements of tradition. How did they go about it? What was the modus operandi? They went about it in a very systematic way and uh, that's thanks in many respects to, to Sweden of all places. Um, Swedish scholars and other Scandinavian scholars have taken a great interest in, in the Celtic nations, the, the fringes of Europe where they believed that, that it was like a laboratory for storytelling uh, that all of the, the, the wonder tales and the magic tales uh, that could be heard uh, throughout Europe in the early 19th century, we'll say pre-industrial Europe, could still be heard in the west of Scotland and in the west of Ireland. That drew them to Ireland and they um, established contacts with Irish scholars and we adopted in Ireland the model that the Swedes had developed for collecting folklore. Very systematic, very scientific in its approach, all not simply recording stories but recording the the context of those stories as well, um, and very person-centred uh, approach. How much of an archive did this eventually uh, accumulate? It's now one of the largest archives of its kind in Europe. 
Uh, really? Yeah, outside right. of Scandinavia, uh, uh, it would probably be the largest. And has it all been mined at this stage? Or are there still, do you reckon there's still, there are, are there still loads of interesting stuff in there yet to be excavated? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, to some degree, the very earliest material that was recorded by the uh, Commission, uh, many, much of it in Irish, and it's in the old Clo Gaelach, the old Irish script, and that is pr proving increasingly a barrier to, to younger people um, right. who, who are unfamiliar with it. So there's a lot, and we're... Thank we're God, it was done away when I was at school. Just, I just missed that. <laughs> you're giving away your age. <laughs> Dear, I'm going to bring you in here then. Uh, what's the genesis then of the, the, new, the new project? Mm -hmm. Or maybe explain what, what it's about, what its well, uh, purpose is. Actually, it's from a long time ago. As Chris mentioned, I studied in the folklore collection. I did uh, my bachelor's degree there, and I did my PhD there. And at one point, as a postgrad, I was talking to a senior lecturer in the arts faculty about um, collecting from folk material from Protestants, and he said, I don't think that much has been done, I don't think there'd be much to collect. And that seemed odd to me, because I had grown up in a Protestant family, a non-practicing Protestant family, but very steeped in folklore, so I knew from personal experience that that What do you mean by folk? Just give us an example. What, what type of thing are you talking about here? Well, it's memories of the past handed down. You know, I'm from New Ross originally, so in New Ross, one of the big things is 1798. Mm -hmm. And I had noticed, even as a child, that the way Protestants told the stories of 1798 was slightly different the memories that have been handed down in their families, they would maybe ha remember different battles or choose to talk about different mm -hmm. battles or talk about them in a slightly different way. And also the way we remembered our ancestors or claimed descent from certain people would again be slightly, slightly different. And, and sometimes um, remembering some of the important times in Irish history, the narratives that I would have heard as a child growing up would be counter to the narratives that I was being taught in school or the narratives that I would hear from my classmates. So I was aware, kind of in a general sense, that, that there was this difference. And then also, uh, then in about four years ago, I started thinking about Protestants as a cultural group and what makes Irish Protestants distinctive. So I started talking to people. So at that point, I went all around the country and I interviewed 50 different people about their family history, their personal memories of growing up, um, community history, customs and beliefs. And, and people had a lot of very interesting ideas about what makes an Irish Protestant. Interestingly, faith was quite far down the list for the majority of these people, although many of them, their faith would be very mm -hmm. important to them. It wasn't a cultural identifier, really. They were more, they would say, it's about the baking, it's about the singing, it's about <laughs> who you're descended from, it's about pretending your ancestors didn't come over with Cromwell. And, um, and people would have a lot of very interesting comments on that. So then at that point I met Chris and I explained what I was doing and he said, you know, we could make this much bigger if we did it with the National Folklore Collection. We put together a questionnaire which was inspired by the first set of interviews. Chris, just back to you, is this, is this the first time the, uh, the Commission's come back out into the field, if you know what I mean? Oh no, no, it's continued to record. It, it doesn't have any full-time collectors, but it's continued to issue questionnaires, for instance, and, okay. and small scale collecting um, Right, right. So there's, there's, a, there's more of an ocean now, this is a, an ongoing thing, the, the, the folklore, as opposed to preserving something that's, that's about to die off. Uh, no, no, we have changed. <coughs> I mean, if we consider, if this is recorded this evening and people listen to this event in 50 years' time, yeah. you know, that will be of intriguing uh, uh, interest to people. But it's early yet, uh, Chris, it's that remains yet. to be seen, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, you just continue, I just saw the uh, interruption. Yeah, no, one of the things that struck me in the first set of interviews I did is I interviewed a very elderly gentleman who had been in 
a Catholic primary school in um, 1937 when the National Folklore Commission did a big collection through the schools. They used mm. older primary school children as folklore collectors and they went and got stories from their grandparents or their neighbours or whomever. And this gentleman had been a little boy at the time and his teacher called him up to the desk and said, it's okay, you don't have to do it um, because they don't want it from families like yours because right. you're Protestants. Now, it wasn't the fault of the Folklore Commission. They actually didn't have a policy to not collect from Protestants, but the way it had been interpreted by right, this on the ground. Okay, woman yeah, on the ground, yeah. in the case of this gentleman anyway, was that um, they weren't interested, uh, and they weren't, somehow, they weren't the folk the way the other children in the school were the folk. So I thought there must be a huge seam of information to collect from people like this gentleman, who is still, he's still alive. He's in his um, late 80s, I think, mm. now. And in fact, he was a wonderful informant. And he said he had had a very happy time in school. There had been no bullying. There hadn't, he hadn't had any negative mm. experience, mm. really. But this, this episode had stuck with him as a time when he had been singled out by a well-meaning teacher and told the Irish state, which is funding this project, is not interested in, in you. To, to what extent, um, though, would, would, would Protestants at the time have excluded themselves? You know, the idea that this is all about papist superstition. Yeah, no, definitely. That, that is actually still a thing. And it's a, funny, it's a bit like that proverb about the Scotsman, no true Scotsman. And a number of people have said to me, you know, Protestants aren't superstitious, so I can't really help you. But then the next thing they'll be telling me, for example, there was a, a lady who said, um, well, we Protestants did not consider ourselves superstitious. And then she told me there was a particular time of year in the area where she grew up where the Catholics would sprinkle the... Um, boundaries of their fields with holy water. And she said, well, we, not being superstitious, we used to sprinkle our fields with salt. And um, <laughs> so... No, I, I remember <laughs> it, when I was in Trinity, Bill Vaughan telling me, some anthropologist, he did a, you know, some folklore thing in, on the, in the border. But the, the, but the Protestant view was, you know, okay, the, the papers, the superstitious papers, they use these cures, right? We use cures as well, but we're scientific. We only use the ones that work. <laughs> you know, right? So, interesting. Maliki, I can bring you in there because you've you've done a bit of um, bit of oral history in in, in your neighbourhood in in, in Meath, right, yeah. and some of your interviewees. Uh, yeah, well, generally come from that was, side of the house. Yeah, generally it was according uh, um, for Mead Library and uh, just general people that have interests of generally, of course, older people and their interests about various aspects of their lives. But since Tommy brought this up to me, I kind of made a concentration on the Protestant community, and I've talked to about five or six of them. And uh, to be honest, yeah, I, I was surprised that there seemed to be very little difference in a lot of their folklore, especially of the Orny, say, farm and working class Protestant. Very similar. I did, uh, then I just went to the bother of uh, checking the folklore for their local Protestant school and all the old cures, all the old kind of things that we like were... Like what? Give us an example of old cures. Like what? Well, uh, uh, one of this Protestant men that, uh, uh, that I was talking to, he... He said he has to cure the bleeding himself, and he'd say a prayer. Uh, indeed, I had an experience. I'm also a farmer. I had an experience of that. His, his brother was visiting me, and I had a, an animal bleeding, and he said, I'll ring me brother, and he handed me the phone. Now, I, I don't think that time worked, but also I mentioned to the same man that a friend of mine, his wife isn't well, and he asked me what's wrong with her, and I explained. He said, uh, what's her first name? And he wanted to know the details so that um, he, he could say his prayers over it. And of course, my me, me most personal story about it is uh, my son had a very bad accident when he was 10 and he was knocked down by a motor car. And um, the, when all the fuss, I hadn't arrived on the scene, this man came along, which subsequently I know he's a Protestant man, 
And he said, I've said the prayer, the bleeding to, over, over your son. And he subsequently then ran into the local house before mobile phones. And uh, they were ringing the usual emergency calls. And he kind of got excited and nearly took the phone on my sister-in-law's hand. And he wanted to ring his mother that had a stronger cure of, of the bleeding. <laughs> now, when we got as far as eventually we ended up in, in Beaumont, the head place, and the, the consultant told us that your son had bleeding off the brain, but it had stopped. Now, I'll never know, was this miracle or was this... Yeah, right. Was, and by, by the fuss as well, the ambulance went out the wrong road and he was, it was delayed. So you could say that that folklore type of thing... It could have saved me, son, or it also could have been a vital mm. thing in, in, in the time lapse. That, 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 uh, so, um, so that's one of these Protestant cures that works. Well, <laughs> we, I certainly <laughs> b- believe in it. And various other things, lame cattle, cutting a scud. I've heard my neighbours talking about that, Catholics' neighbours, and also the, the Protestant society as well. Uh, mm. Lots of that kind of stuff. And in, in, the, in the folklore, indeed, some of the folklore in the local Protestant school was in Irish. I was surprised to see... Uh, a good, a big, long essay. Unfortunately, my uh, Irish wasn't even good enough to read it. Uh, but a big, long essay on, on, on stuff in, in, in the local uh, school. About uh, our area, the, the schools would be very small in the Protestant community because it would be very sparse, about 14 people in it or so. And unfortunately, there seemed to be a, a huge um, kind of a, an overlap of the same children uh, repeating various stories, where in the Catholic schools you'd get a huge m- more variety, you would say bigger schools just but, mm. but the teachers were way well into it and a wonderful account of, of I come from near Loch Crew, a wonderful account of the initial burning of Loch Crew in, in, in the 1880s uh, by an eyewitness account related I think by the teacher it was very mm. well mm. extremely well put I think it was related by the teacher at the time uh, of, of the burning of, of Loch Crew. and this is a large mansion of a house uh, some of you might know it it was burned three times subsequent that was the first of three but anyway, that's another story Various other uh, folklore, things like that. But, but in my own experience, uh, um, I talked about sport a lot. To, 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 because the Gaelic football, of course, is kind of a different divide on how they feel about it. did, I think, felt it kind of niggled some people in a sense that it wasn't an open society, the Gaelic mm. Association, and certainly up till the 1970s or so. Uh, and, of course, some of the families had military background with, with the British forces, which would have been another reason why they couldn't... Uh, um, um, but that's, that's a tradition across the board, though. I mean, you know, a, a, a military tradition in the, in the British Army, it seems to me, like, I mean, it's, it's not just a Protestant thing. It's, it's, it's a, you know, across... Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. But I suppose by, 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 by the way it was, it was more Protestant, cert- certainly in, in yeah. the Second World War, which a lot of Protestants joined up more so than Catholics. Uh, yeah, so. Ian, can I bring you, you in here? Because one of the things uh, from reading... Um, Deirdre and Christor's article, which is the latest issue of History Island magazine, which is on sale in the shop, I believe, downstairs, um, is the diversity, right? But the thing is, if you go down the diversity road, does the whole thing not just kind of disappear? Like, is there such a thing as a, a Protestant cultural identity? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, because I can't answer it. Um, <coughs> That's why I asked you. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Um, at one level, I think one has to be very careful about treating Protestants as exceptional. Um, you know, as a minority, they're closer to the majority than most minorities are in other societies, for instance. I mean, you can't really tell a Protestant apart from a Catholic by measuring the size of their feet, or, or indeed whether they, they wash fruit or, or before they eat it or don't. Um, so to some extent, that sort of 
um, idea of differentiation, of, of trying to prove that, that Protestantism is something like the colour of your skin or something innate to you in your DNA is actually quite difficult to prove. And I, I think this actually comes across in, in families. I mean, you know, let's get back to the personal. My family was a, a Protestant uh, family who came over as foot soldiers, William III, in the, 16, the early 1690s, got a small grant of land in, in Clare, uh, subsequently fell on hard times uh, in the early 19th century, married into a Catholic Limerick merchant family, all turned to be very devout Catholics, but then in the early 20th century, remarried into Protestantism and became equally devout Protestants. So my mix, for instance, comes from a number of traditions and a number of ways of looking at things. So my grand-aunt, for instance, who was a personal friend of John Charles McQuaid and a woman who went to Mass every day of her life, um, had a particular pecking order in, in the house, for instance, at Christmas, where she held court and had a grand Christmas dinner, to which, by the way, the ladies uh, had to wear long dresses and the gentlemen had to wear dinner jackets as late as 1964. And um, we always... The Protestants part of the, f of the family, were all, we always felt that perhaps we were not treated quite the same way. In big, a big, drafty Victorian house, we were always put at the very back of the room where, the, where it was freezing. Whereas the two Catholic priests that she invariably had for Christmas dinner, because they were indigent, they were put up sitting right beside the fire. And it's little things like that, I think, which begin as uh, I was a small child, but I got the impression that perhaps that's what diversity uh, wasn't at the time. And I'm not so sure that that hasn't coloured the sort of things I think and the sort of things I write, as all our childhood experiences probably do. Mm. Neil, can I still come to you? Because, I mean, I, the, the, the title I've used here, and I've used it before, you're keeping the head down, right? Mm. Um, and this is one of these cliches that's applied. I mean, is it true? And then why would Protestants keep the head down? Uh, well, I think in the, after the formation of the Free State, uh, you had a situation where the dominant ethos was uh, Roman Catholic, and uh, the Catholic Church ran so many institutions. Uh, but uh, the two communities were hermetic hermetically sealed off from one another. Uh, and uh, I think... Well, not, not, not totally if, if in Ian's yeah, case. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a bit well, of uh, skipping back and forth there, you know. Okay, but, uh, but Ian has written, uh, written eloquently himself about um, how you could live your life in Cork entirely within the Protestant community and uh, if you wished not encounter a member of the other of the other community. And I think uh, Carol Coulter has written, uh, written about that to the same extent in the Irish Times, although she wrote about her own background in Sligo in a small farming community uh, as, though the, uh, as though the community was integrated. But when she moved to Dublin, to a uh, South Dublin middle class uh, community, uh, it was more or less sealed off uh, one community from the other. And one of the reasons the, uh, given for the Protestant community doing that is because of the Temerary Decree. So any Protestant who married a uh, Roman Catholic, inevitably their children would be lost to the Protestant community because the Protestant was obliged to agree that the children would be brought up Roman Catholic. But I think there's more to it than that. Um, uh, the, the sealing off of the two communities uh, gives the impression that uh, there are big differences between them. But in terms of the research I've done on uh, children who are in various uh, Protestant institutions, 
institutions, mother and baby homes, orphanages. What I see is a great deal of similarity, but a great deal of similarity within which people are not aware of them across the communities. And also, I think, uh, whereas uh, within uh, the broad Roman Catholic community, there's no sense uh, anymore that you need to uh, wash, uh, you need to um, not talk about... Uh, about uh, things that are embarrassing or that you disagree with uh, or there's no, no sense anymore of giving scandal in relation to uh, the Catholic Church and so on, which is a means in the past of keeping everything hidden. But I think th that conversation hasn't so much taken place, might be going off the point now slightly, uh, within the Protestant community because I don't think there's, uh, th there's still a sense, I know people who are in one or two of the orphanages, they're told by other members of the community, uh, don't talk about this because uh, you're letting the side down. So uh, when you're in a small, smaller community, you have a greater sense of, uh, of um, being focused on by the larger one. So whereas uh, if you are in the Protestant community, and even if you try and remain separate, uh, you have a situation where uh, you do encounter other members of the ethos of the of dominant community uh, and because it's so prevalent, whereas most Catholics are not um, aware so much of what life is like within Protestant communities because simply uh, it, it's not part of, their, of, their, of the general environment that they encounter. So that I was interested, say, in terms of you know, the idea that, that, um, that uh, folklore is a Catholic thing or superstition is a Catholic thing. I remember coming across doing research, a uh, Church of England minister who came over to the Church of Ireland, he was uh, ministering in the, in the Midlands, and he was surprised one day to get a, a call from a local farmer asking him to come out and bless his, bless his tractor. And he thought, this is not the kind of thing I'm used to in the Church of England. I wonder where would I find uh, a blessing for a tractor? So he rang up the local uh, Catholic priest who had a book of blessings, <laughs> and they rifled through it to find a relevant one. And of course, there's a memoir by a former um, member of the Church of Ireland uh, who, which is called The Rector Who Would Not pr Pray for Rain. Now, he, in fact, became an atheist, but when he was a minister, he was asked, uh, you know, would he pray for rain for, uh, in order for the crops to go, and he wouldn't do it. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why the, the Folklore Commission uh, and this initiative is very important, and it's important that this discussion takes place within the community generally, but also within the... Um, uh, generally, that the, there's a discussion within the Protestant community uh, about the things that they don't want to talk about, just as within the Roman Catholic community that discussion will take place over a, no, a long number of years. And I think that's going to be very important. Yeah, I, I, was, I wonder, being you, and I just want to remind the audience you know, that we are at a school, and you have to do a bit of work here at this head school. Uh, so you can gather your thoughts there. If you have any uh, um, question you want to ask or contribution to make, uh, just put your hand up and we'll go to the audience. We, we have a radio mic there for that purpose. Ian, do you want to just comment on some of what Neil said there? Yeah. You can come in as well. Um, and and it, I think some of this stems from the 1930s, the 1920s and the 1930s, when uh, Southern Protestants were trying to search for some sort of connectivity with the, this alien um, state in which they now found themselves. So they're looking for different sort of forms of belonging, if you like. Uh, and one of them was a rather distasteful one, in my view, which was one of, of, of moral superiority. Um, they, they could be quite sniffy and, and, and climb on, if not um, uh, real horses, on high horses. Um, things like their um, objection to, um, uh, to uh, liquor laws, to uh, particularly to the Irish hospital sweepstake and gambling, um, 
while at the same time uh, sometimes quite happy to take state money if it was actually offered to them, by the way, but that, that's another story. But th that was one, one way they could do it. Um, uh, and to, extent, to an extent, that has allowed them, uh, and I still think there's a residue of it, to, to see themselves as possibly slightly superior citizens to the Catholic population, which sounds rather, rather strange, but it's a way of connecting into the, into the system. But it has resulted in what Niall has said, that dirty linen has uh, not only not been washed in public, but there is a, an unwillingness to admit that there is any dirty linen at all. Yeah, Deirdre, yeah. Something that is certainly coming up, and uh, certainly with, with older people who remember the devastating effects of Nathemere, they often talk now with a degree of shame about things that happened in their families or communities that talk about relatives who were put out and how cruelly they were treated, more cruelly in many cases by the Protestant Put out, community. there's a phrase, what does that mean? Put out, well, sent to England, uh, sent away, thrown out of the family, disinherited, especially when it came to land. And there was this feeling of, um, we don't want land to be inherited by a Catholic. You know, they'll mess around with it. They'll, they'll, they won't treat it properly. They'll cut down all the trees. They'll destroy it. They'll mess it up. Um, and what we are finding in the research we're doing is a lot of sameness as well as difference. We're not looking for difference, we're looking for what's there and we're finding both some differences and a lot of samenesses. But something that Neil said just sparked off a memory of one of the interviews I did with a lady who, um, who said that she really started to understand her identity as a Protestant when she listened to the first interview on radio of a gentleman who had been brought up by a lesbian couple. And she said she started to cry because he said, um, you know, if you're different, or if people think you're different, even if you're not different, if people think you're different, they're watching you, and every time you misbehave, they'll say, look, he's brought up by a couple of lesbians, of course he you know, doesn't know how to carry on. And she said, well, I felt like that growing up. She grew up in a community where there were very few Protestants, and she felt, you know, she was accepted, her family was very integrated, they were small farmers, they were on great terms with their neighbours, everything was fine, but she did feel that any time she misbehaved, people would well, see, look... Um, mm -hmm. She doesn't know how to behave. She's not being brought up in the, the same way as the majority. But the fact was, her life wasn't really very different to the majority. Like Ian was saying, I mean, they, their life was, was very similar. Their customs and traditions were very similar. But um, a lot of people, um, I think, are beginning to come to terms with what Ian was talking about, this sense of cultural superiority, which I think they developed in the earlier years of the Free State. One man remembered his parents. He said, my parents were like a wounded dog. You know, they were, um, th this was a working class family from Ring's End. They were a wounded dog, and the only way they knew how to attack was deciding they were better than all the neighbours. So they cut themselves off from the neighbours, didn't let the kids play with the neighbours, uh, refused to ask for help even though they were living in desperate poverty, mm. and in fact insisted on handing out sweets to all the neighbours whom they hated to show them that they could afford to, although they couldn't. Right, right. So, I mean, it was quite a self-destructive urge, I think, in, 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 uh, among some elements of the Protestant community before that, um, that people still remember today, some people still remember today. Maliki, go, go on to you, uh, because, I mean, Nate Temer has been mentioned here, right? I mean, uh, did this crop up at all in your interviews? Sorry, what? Nate Temer, you know, this thing, the, 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 the use of it. Or, or, or even, say, low-level sectarianism, right? Does that, does yeah, that crop up? One of the things I did ask a few people about coming from school when they're passing by, you know, where the Catholic people, children hung around, and uh, um, a couple of them told me that there'd be gangs of Catholic children waiting and lying and wait for them coming, mm -hmm. 
And uh, one man said, he says, me, me brother was quite able, so he was able to get away from it. The other man said to me, he says, uh, I learned uh, diplomacy very young. He says, I, I learned to get friendly with these lads and then they mm. won't beat mm. me up. But I asked him, did they think it was sectarian or did they think it was just, um, um, you know, local blackguardism? And they didn't seem to think it was sectarian yeah. reason. Or were they egged on by their, by their parents to do any of this? And they didn't think so. They did, one man said, uh, the smart fellas from around the village would be egging it on, you know, watching and trying yeah. to get some disturbance going. But uh, neither, like, neither of them thought it was a serious thing, but mm. maybe, maybe they were... Sounds a bit like Broom Bridge in my neighbourhood, you know, Fingless and Cabra, you know, they used to knock yeah. socks off, you know, off each other, you know. It's the and same. that wasn't about religion at all. It was just yeah. different neighbourhoods, you know. Yeah, I thought that the same in any, say, two parishes. Put them, yeah. out, put them out on a football field and then hammer each other and they'll go yeah. off drinking that night or be at school the next day or whatever. So it's just a tribal thing, I think, in a sense. But uh, them thought it was a serious thing, but it actually did happen, I suppose. You'd have to note that. And, of course, the, 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 the numbers were on the side of the Catholics in my area anyway, so that uh, obviously would be under threat. So. There is a huge amount of sectarian material in the folklore collection, by the way anti-Protestant sectarian material and I was wondering if I would come across any anti-Catholic sectarian material, very little because fortunately people aren't as prejudiced as they used to be, but there was one gentleman who wrote in, he said, I'm not going to write this down, but I do know a lot of very filthy anti-Catholic jokes that were told when I was a child, so um, I rang him up immediately and I said, I want to hear these jokes, and he said, well, you know, you're a lady I don't know if I want to tell them to you, but I persuaded him anyway, and there was a very active um, body of I'm sectarian sorry, you're, you're folklore well, they're filthy, and we're in very good company. <laughs> but, um, How disappointing. But the funny thing was that he learned them as a little boy in the Boys' Brigade, which is a kind of a Protestant version of the Boy Scouts, which he was in in the 1940s. And he said, um, that's, that's where they were told, and these jokes were absolutely filthy. And um, I'm sure that there was an active body of sectarian lore earlier. People, fortunately, aren't as prejudiced as they, they once were, and I, this type of bullying isn't, you know... Chris, or does, does this crop up in the original Folklore Commission, you know, sectarianism, naked sectarianism? Yes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going back to my, my Chambers definition here. It also includes the superstitions and prejudices yeah. of the common yeah. people. Yeah. When you say naked sectarianism, that might be somewhat strong, but sectarianism without a doubt. You know, the, the bulk of what was recorded by the Folklore Commission, certainly in its early years, was almost exclusively Catholic. And uh, they, for instance, a good uh, example is to look at the, what I call the, 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 the Bible of Irish folklore, the Handbook of Irish Folklore, published in 1942, written by Sean O'Sullivan, based almost entirely on the Swedish model. But one particular chapter is in Sweden, which in Sweden is given over to local legends and topographical uh, uh, in, uh, uh, tradition. Uh, he replaced that with a, a chapter on religious tradition, specifically Catholic tradition. Mm. And um, wh while here and there you, you, you do, the, there's an acknowledgement that uh, in the book that there are faiths other than Catholicism. Nonetheless, the questions are they, that are, are posed by the collector reveal the come from the perspective of the Catholic rather than the Protestant. Mm. So uh, it assumes that they, both the collector and the informant were actually uh, being queried about their Protestant neighbours uh, in many ways. And 
Um, the, the, the classic example, of, I suppose, is the in Irish tradition, in folk tradition, is the image of the tyrannical uh, Protestant landlord um, who is in league with the devil and uh, if tackled in the right way will be banished in a... In a <laughs> so this crops up like it, this is it, a repeating... It, in, in the folklore recorded in the first half of the 20th century, I'd say that was very quite right. prevalent. Um, uh, right. So this was, this was collecting done from the perspective of the majority, the dominant population in the 26 counties. Mm. Uh, it didn't actively set out to, 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 uh, to, to be sectarian, but it's certainly, there's a lacuna there, which we're trying to correct laterally. There's also a lacuna, so I should add about urban uh, Ireland, you know, that, that uh, they, the, the people felt at the time that urban Ireland uh, was uh, culturally poor, uh, it didn't have the, the diversity, the variety of traditions and customs, or the richness of tradition generally that you would find in the countryside. So well, this the, I mean, that's not the case today. I mean, you know, I mean, if, if you look yeah. at our towns and cities today, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, just the, the, mm. in terms of the 18% mm. born outside Ireland, I mean, there's yeah. a whole new slew of folklore coming down the track there, you know? Absolutely. So we, today we need to question all these assumptions, all these stereotypes, and a lot of what is coming through and a lot of what Malachi was saying there, for instance, uh, emphasises that uh, in the t in the, on the level of material culture, there is so much that links everybody, regardless, economically, materially, um, but in terms of prejudice and in terms of practice and so on, at one point in time, it was very divisive, uh, uh, and that is waning, considered. considered. Ian, you want to come in there? I, 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 I think you're, you're, you're quite right. One of the things, of course, is, is the asymmetry you have between the size of, uh, between the two different populations. So, for instance, in this area where you had a very large proportion of Protestants, Protestants and Catholics would have known each other better because simply there were, there were more of them on either side. If you were in um, uh, West Clare uh, or, 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 or isolated parts of Kerry, your, your average Catholic probably seldom came across Protestants or Protestantism. And therefore, there's a level uh, at which their um, view is actually not one of experience, but it may be of received memory or of, or, or of folklore. But it's not based on what happened. If you, were in, if you were a Protestant, if you were a Catholic in Greystones in 1926, you were only 43% of the population there. It was, a majority, it was a majority Protestant town. So the dynamics there would have been entirely different in term, terms of knowingness, if you like, on, on and familiarity on both sides. Did you want to come in? Because this crops up in the, in the History Iron article, that yeah. the different perspectives between somebody, say, living in Greystones or somebody living in yeah. Kerry. There actually seem to be a number of... Because I've gone all around the country and there seem to be a number of areas that you can kind of hone in on as having things in common. There is the border area, which has had a unique experience because it has more links with Northern Ireland and because I think... I mean, Ian would know better because he's a historian, but probably links or, you know, commonalities that date back to where people came from in the plantation times. Then you have Dublin, where there was quite a big affluent population, where you could go to Protestant primary school, Protestant secondary school, Trinity College, go and work in a Protestant firm, and possibly, if you didn't want to, not necessarily have any Catholic friends whatsoever. Then you go down to places like Roscommon or West Clare, and if you're a Protestant farmer subsisting on, on 20 acres, as, as some people were until the 1950s and 60s, your experience would be quite different uh, of being a Protestant than someone in, 
in Dublin. And one of the things that does come up is, is the difficulty of finding someone to marry, which wouldn't really have been an issue for your middle-class person in Rathgar, but was very much an issue for someone in Roscommon. And that's a theme that does keep coming up in these areas where there are very few Protestants, that, that the difficulty of finding someone to marry, with the fact that your family would frown on you and maybe disown you if you married out of the community, and the fact that you didn't have a car, and maybe the nearest social was 70 kilometers away, or miles, I suppose, 50 miles in those days. And people talking about, even as recently as the 50s and 60s, the lengths they went to to get to these socials, to meet a girl, to meet a boy, who they could marry, who wasn't their cousin, who was not a Catholic girl or a boy, but someone that would be accepted into their family. And, um, I mean, people have been talking about, you know, we had no money, we only had a bicycle, we would, you know, go half the way one day, sleep in a haystack, get to the party the next day, you know, go mad for all the girls, dance with all the girls possible. And, you know, there wouldn't be another social for another three months that they could get to because they'd be busy on the farm. And just the business of finding someone to marry, if you grew up in one of those communities, it was very... Difficult. So Sounds like a full-time job then, yeah. in yeah, itself. Just, just on that, and Rachel, not marrying your cousin, uh, in 1965, the Dean of Art Fair, Charles Greystack, said it was very important that young Protestants be gathered together from afar to reduce, reduce the risk of inbreeding. Mm-mm. Uh, and, uh, but in terms of this, uh, you know, finding a Protestant, there were actually, um, the marriage bureaus were set up uh, and they advertised, you know, in 1954, I just had this because this is something I prepared for the Mother and Baby Home Commission, uh, Dublin's Marriage Society, 2,000 members, provides introductions for most people who genuinely desire marriage. Protestants urgently needed. Callers welcomed. That was in 54. In 71, uh, Tara Marriage Bureau requires new members, especially men Catholic in 30s and 50s. Widower, widowers welcomed. Ladies Protestant in early 20s and 30s for introduction uh, to present members. Now, they didn't want the uh, Protestant ladies from the Catholic men. Uh, they wanted to keep them separate. And, you know, this um, uh, separation uh, of the two communities, which is something we're coming back to, uh, is something that uh, the, the two churches, because they had control of the schools, they had control of um, health, uh, they had a means of, um, of keeping people separate uh, when they were growing up and when they were sick. And also in terms of what you were talking, you mentioned, uh, dear, dear, Protestant firms, uh, people went to work for Protestant firms. So, Again, I think in uh, Kurt Bowen's uh, 1983 study um, uh, um, about um, the Church of Ireland community said he, came, he did a, a questionnaire and about 90% of those he talked to uh, only uh, started working in a Protestant firm and 80% uh, only ever worked in a Protestant firm. And that situation lasted in Ireland, in Southern Ireland, from about the 1920s to the 1960s. And in fact, it was reinforced by something that is sometimes er- erroneously called Catholic economic nationalism, protectionism. Protectionism preserved a lot of the Protestant firms in Aspic because they were preserved from uh, outside competition. Once the 60s came along, a lot of those firms uh, uh, disappeared, but a lot of them were taken over by who? By Tony O'Reilly and Michael Smurfett. And uh, whereas uh, Tony O'Reilly was rather indifferent to the practice of the firms in employing, employing only Protestants, uh, Smurfett had a chip on his shoulder about it because his father had been blackballed when he attempted to join an exclusively Protestant uh, golf club. Not on the basis that he was a Catholic, but because it was assumed that somebody with a big nose, a foreign-sounding name, and a lot of money must be Jewish. <laughs> so, uh, and when Smurfett took over the... He, Smurfett found out in the, in, the six, found in the 60s when he was trying to take over companies, he would offer more money for a couple of companies, but his bid wasn't accepted because he, w- he was... Uh, Roman Catholic. 
but in the end of the 60s, he took over the largest trading company of the time, Healy's. And he took it over secret secretly when he could buy shares secretly. And when he went into the firm, he was surprised to discover in the Articles Association, well, not so, so much surprised, uh, that it stated no Catholic shall ever become a director of Healy's. So wow. that situation, um, and it wasn't just, I think, in terms of there were middle-class um, Protestant communities in Dublin, but also working-class communities in the north side of Dublin around Drumcondra. A lot of them might have worked in Gouldings. Uh, uh, and again, Gouldings um, um, uh, went into difficulty again in the 70s after Ireland joined the EEC. Mm -hmm. So there's a long, there is a long period of about 40 or 50 years in which things remained more or less static. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Roman Catholic Church tried to keep as much control of its population as it could. The Protestant churches tried to keep as much control of its population as it could. Uh, control of the, of the schools and, and hospitals, but also within the Protestant community, uh, uh, control of uh, major aspects of the economy was also an important factor, I think, which again disappeared from about the 1970s on. Although I think we must always recognize that all of this was going on long before independence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the change of, the change of regime, um, uh, you know, the old saw that all that happened was they painted the post boxes green, ha has some validity to it, because things simply more or less continued as they were. And I think we must also remember that the, that the Free State in particular was scared witless in case Protestant capital um, uh, fled the country. So it actually was quite careful about how it dealt with, uh, with, with, with Protestants. And, and the general thing was, uh, more or less leave them to their own devices. Uh, it was almost like uh, a form of internal devolution, if you like, uh, in which Protestants were, were allowed to run their own businesses, run their hospitals, their schools, their churches, with minimal interference uh, uh, from the state. And, and in a sense, I suppose one could say that that, that form of, of parallelism, if you like, worked quite well. Um, yes, Protestants emigrated in higher numbers uh, in the 20s and 30s than Catholics did, but there wasn't a mass exodus by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, you know, I think one, instead of seeing possibly the glass half empty, as some, of, some people who, who, who pursue what I'm, I would call the, the victimhood thesis, uh, one should see it as more likely as being half full, in the sense that it was a pragmatic solution to a problem um, which, which nobody wanted to actually create. Now, is there anyone in the audience want to come in here? Because I'm just looking at the time here. Um, if anyone has a question or uh, would like to say something on this discussion, uh, we have a radio mic there if you, want to, if you want to come in. Now, I just want to bring up something here because north of the border, uh, when you know, people use the term Protestant culture, they mean the Orange Order, right? And Orange Marches. So. Does this crop up? In, in, the, in your interviews? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's in the border areas, um, two things crop up. One was a lot of people have very active memories of going to the orange picnics and of learning to play accordion in an orange band. And um, they tend either not to discuss or perhaps it's not important for them, the sectarian elements of the orange order. I, I, I'm not sure which. But um, um, a lot of people have reported very comfortable relationships until the troubles broke out in Northern Ireland between the orange community and the, and the other one, uh, including one story about how one village was quite poor and they could only afford one large drum, so the Hibernian order, or the ancient order of Hibernia and the orange order had just one drum that they redecorated for appropriately for the different <laughs> events. Um, 
The Orange Order, people talking about the Orange Order are large, almost, almost entirely restricted to border areas. We have interviewed one gentleman from the Midlands, but he would be very much an exception. Um, there's some tiny level of oranges, I think, but minuscule. Mostly it's in Donegal, Monaghan, mm. these cabin, these kind of areas. Does that crop um, up in the original commission, uh, Christopher Tall, you know, the Orange Order? Uh, yes, yes, very much so. Uh, in the context of um, secret societies, uh, so it would have been treated as a, a subject uh, about which to record information in the same vein as, you know, uh, uh, other, uh, you mentioned the ancient order of Berlians, but more the, the agrarian outrage type, ribbon men, white boys, and so on, the Blackfeet in the 19th century, any secretive organisation, the Freemasons as well, a lot of folklore and tradition about that. Yeah, let's talk about Freemasonry. Mm. I mean, the thing about Freemasonry is marvellous. You know, you can, you can concoct any conspiracy you like mm. if you throw in the word Freemason. Mm. I mean, this would come up, it would be seen as a Protestant thing, although Daniel O'Connell was a Freemason, mm. right, mm. interestingly. Mm. But so how... how is, is there a, a, a kind of a blurring between the Orange Order and the Freemasonry? Are they seen as one and the same thing? Well, uh, the, the, the Orange Order are more associated in tradition, in folk tradition, recorded in the early 20th century, as we say, as, uh, as a very active and sectarian force. You know, the historical tradition dominates there, you know, re remembering the Battle of the Diamond, f uh, uh, disputes over land, um, and... Those, tend to, those tend to types of stories tend to dominate. When you talk about the Freemasons, the emphasis is on the secret powers that Freemasons were alleged to have. And they would be a, a, a equivalent to you know, the Black Book of the Middle Ages, that Freemasons could do things like raise the wind uh, 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 and so forth. You're using special powers, you're talking about supernatural powers. Supernatural right, powers, exactly. Right. That, that wouldn't be in tradition associated with the Orange Order, I have to say. It, <laughs> it's more, that's more political and economic, the, the, uh, the views. And in, 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 uh, in Cavan and North Mead, of course, you, you would have a lot of tension. Uh, and that comes through the, the folklore. One of, one of our best collectors was a Cavan man, uh, P.J. Gaynor, who wrote for the Anglo-Celt. And he's recorded quite a lot of those tensions, stories about um, uh, land dispossession and uh, you know injustices and so on like that uh, from either side, indeed. But um, and interestingly, in Irish, the uh, uh, orange uh, an orange man is referred to as a as a yellow man, far bui, mm -hmm. rather than a, 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 an orange per se. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Why that mm -hmm. is, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ian, is this Freemasonry of the Orange Order feature in, in your life? Uh, no, not, not particularly. Um, I'm in the process of co-editing a collection of essays on Southern Irish Protestants and their accommodation with Southern Ireland since 1922. Um, and we're looking at it in terms of sort of three themes, like um, belongingness, um, engagement, where people became engaged with, the, with, with Catholics and the state, and otherness, which covers a lot of the sort of things that, that Deirdre and, and Chris are talking about. Um, but, but curiously, what is interesting us is, that, uh, is the things that aren't said. And for instance, 
Orangism and Freemasonry don't really appear hugely in the, in the, in the scheme of things. Um, Orangism tends to be a more public um, display of loyalism um, and particular political and religious uh, position. Freemasonry, by its nature, um, is relatively secretive. Um, and where you find it is you have to look for sort of secondary traces of it, if you like. So um, you see it in a lot of the large firms in Dublin, for instance, uh, where uh, it was almost impossible to move up the ladder unless you became a Freemason. Uh, my father worked for, for Players, the, the cigarette firm, which was a Protestant firm, but he had no truck with, with Freemasonry. And as a result, uh, it may well have been his innate incompetence, I don't know, but um, we, we, we look on the bright side and say it was because he refused to, to, to join the Masonic Order and therefore could not progress beyond a, a completely invisible ceiling, if you like, never mind glass. Just on that, um, there's a, a giant book by Alex Findlater on uh, Findlater's The Grocery Firm, which yeah. you may remember, yeah. again, regarding the Protestant firm. But uh, he talks about being asked to, be, to join the Freemasons mm. at one stage by his father, uh, and he refused, mm. um, uh, like your father. And um, he said, again, it was uh, very prevalent in the business circles in Dublin. Mm. Um, and uh, he said that the alternative organisation on the Catholic side would have been the Knights of Colin Balance. Um, but uh, they were set up to promote uh, Catholics in business. But strangely enough, or ironically enough, the Catholic Church wasn't too keen on that because it, they thought it would um, create sectarian tensions in industry, and they didn't want to, to have those because it would create labour tension. Mm. So they moved the Knights of Columbanus into combating um, horror comics, uh, sexy films, raunchy films, and uh, all kinds of other activity, which... Um, Basically what happened with the Catholic Church and with the Knights is uh, this drove people um, irritated, the target market. Most Catholics became extremely irritated by this activity by the Catholic Church uh, and that's one of the reasons why in the 1960s people started to drift off this, um, this perennial um, uh, obsession with sex. Um, which is, of course, we're not talking about Protestants here, but, but I think it's interesting that uh, whereas the Freemasons were part of the business community here, an organisation within the Catholic Church or... Uh, composed of Catholics, uh, was moved by the Catholic Church, the institutional church, into other activity other than the one for which it was set up. Now, anyone come in here? I'm struck on the time here. Uh, yeah, it, 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 yeah, just wait for the, the radio mic so we can, we can hear you. And by the way, this, this is being recorded, so um, nothing, nothing defamatory. <laughs> Yeah, Ignatius Smart, I'm originally from Baileyborough, and it was a very mixed. But a point was made there about Third Way, the yellow man. The yes. There is no Gaelic, there is no colour of orange, actually. And in the Constitution, green, white, and orange, the words in Gaelic for those are Uinia, Bon, August Flan, Vui. Flanvui meaning blooded yellow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> interesting, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's no definite equivalence to say it's the same with uh, with red. You have in Irish you've darug and rua, rua meaning a more a russety type of colour, uh, but that's more common. If you say somebody has red hair, you'd say dinna rua, ban rua or whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, Malachi mentioned the um, GAA and the exclusion of Protestants in the GAA, and Deirdre mentioned the Scouts. Um, we've talked about adult things, you know, the Orange Order. Um, in the Scouting movement, were, uh, was it very much a Protestant thing, or were, was there an integration of Catholics and Protestants within no, the movement? No, no not, not until very recent times. It's, it's very much kind um, of British sort of, with Baden Powell, the organisation. So there was um, there were the, the, the original there are original Boy Scouts in Ireland, Protestant, essentially attached to Protestant schools that date from the from the, almost the time that Baden Powell founded the Scouts. And then there's a Catholic Boy Scout movement. Now I'm I'm not I'm on somewhat unfamiliar territory. There is that the 1920s or 30s? Um, uh, I, I don't know. But uh, in essence, they were. They were, as so many other things were, it's just another facet of, of denominational um, organisation uh, and separation. Um, and it, it was only, I think, in the 1970s or 80s that the, uh, that the Boy Scout movement effectively, uh, or the Scout movement, because it now includes girls, of course, um, became uh, non-sectarian and non-gender non based as well. Yeah, I just want to ask about the uh, Irish language. What was the Protestant community's attitude to the mandatory uh, teaching in schools? <laughs> well, uh, the answer is that generally they think they didn't like it. Um, they had no choice but to get on with it. There was an like Irish everybody else here. like everybody else. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, uh, it, it, this again is another instance of. of of a, to some extent, a false separation, because there were uh, there were there were a very there was a very substantial minority of Catholics who would have had equally uh, problem who would have had equal problems with with the with, with the uh, compulsory teaching of Irish. Having said that, the um, the Protestant educational authorities knuckled down and got on with it, uh, insofar as they had to. Um, um, there was an Irish teacher training college, um, you know, Colosse de Movi, and it, it, the, the Irish language has always had some place in, particularly the Church of Ireland, for instance. There's uh, there's um, uh, there's uh, common uh, Gaelic Hoglish um, uh, and Heron, which is the Irish Guild of the Church, which is still in existence. It was founded in the early 20th century as part of the, uh, the Gaelic revival, and it still exists and it still holds church services and other events through the medium of Irish. And this is actually one interesting area because another thing that Protestants tried to do in the 20s and 30s was to demonstrate their Irishness in different ways. For instance, in 1932, we, we, uh, Catholics remember that as the year of the Eucharistic Congress, but that was also the 1500th anniversary of the landing of St. Patrick in Ireland. And the Church of Ireland went to town on this uh, to the extent of effectively trying to claim uh, St. Patrick as a sort of pre-Protestant, if you like. Um, and the Archbishop of Dublin at the time is on record as saying that in his view, the Church of Ireland was, and I quote, the most Irish thing there is in Ireland. And the idea of, of, of appropriating a national symbol of St. Patrick is another attempt by Protestants to come to some form of accommodation or to terms with uh, the situation, the contemporary situation that they found themselves in. Yeah, I think one of them. Back there? Yeah, sorry. Sorry. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting discussion. I, I just to briefly, I would be fairly typical. I live in Meath, but would have grown up in the country, wouldn't have had any contact with Protestants other than that my aunt in Cork was a Protestant and she took us in when we were too much for my mother. And But I'd always remember coming back to school and the horror that some of the nuns would then say to me about living with the Protestant family. And, you know, that was the reality, I think, the whole separation of people. You know, I didn't learn any sort of sectarian stuff in my family, but I was very aware of it in terms of references to Protestants. And I think very much, I came much more aware of the contribution that Protestants made to the peace process here when, you know, many years ago we were involved in Meath in a, in a, in a peace group. We had public talks and went into schools and a whole lot of thing went on for years. And the Protestant community in Meath played a major part in that, coming in large numbers to the talks. And that all was sort of, set back a lot of the, say, the orange men we had coming down from Northern Ireland. Uh, also a group in Cavan here did remarkable work with border Protestants and Catholics. And through those discussions, you'd hear quite a few of the Meath Protestants saying about how they did keep their heads down, but they weren't going to do that anymore. And you'd hear their stories. And I'd like to hear an awful lot. I was very interested that that gentleman there is doing a history of Protestants since 1920. And I think there is a huge story there, which is also extremely important to the development of the reconciliation process on this island. And I think the whole diversity of Protestantism is something that only I became aware of when we were involved in the peace group. But, but even just as late as, say, seven years ago, in a visit to a local school when we were bringing people down, and we did this for 20 years, bringing people from both communities into schools all over Meath, and there was a workshop guy there who'd always sort of look, question this whole idea of identity and how do we regard ourselves as Irish. Mm. And I remember in this school, this young boy immediately going into a corner and we said, well, why are you going in there? He said, well, because they'll put me there if I don't go there. And we sort of said, why? Well, you're going to ask who's the most Irish and I won't be called that. Mm. And they all said, yeah, we Ash, we let you in. And we asked him why, and he said, because well, I'm Church of Ireland, and I wouldn't be considered Irish. <coughs> and they kind of said, the, the other students said, ah, no, well, you'd be kind of Irish. But I was, <laughs> I was kind of amazed, because this guy was very popular, and this was only seven years ago mm. in a local, very large uh, community school. Mm. And then in another school in Drogheda, similarly, a couple of years before that, we had Republicans and Orangemen down talking together, and a girl came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, sometimes, because I'm a Protestant, I'm treated quite badly here, but I don't know who to talk to. Mm. So it, it's, that is there still. Mm. Well, Edna um, Longley in 1989, I think, put it very simply. She said, Protestants, uh, Catholics are born Irish, whereas Protestants have to work their passage to Irishness. <laughs> and I think that is, a, that, it's a short phrase, but I think it captures uh, quite a lot. Uh, that is, of course, assuming that Protestants then and even now, want to work their passage to Irishness. There's a question being asked there. But certainly you see things, you see movement. You know, the other thing we miss is trying to treat Protestants as some, some form of static lump that sits there. The generations are moving. So in 1948, on the declaration of the, of the Republic of Ireland, Church of Ireland had to change its prayers because it was still had prayers to the royal family because the king was technically still legally head of state um, 
in Ireland. And this provoked quite a furious backlash. But the point was the Church of Ireland saw it off. It knew it had to change its prayers. Um, it could no longer pray effectively for... A, it might as well have been praying for the President of the United States of America. Uh, no longer any connectivity with Ireland. But the, the point is that the Church uh, took on the backwoodsmen who wanted to keep some form of link and effectively saw, saw it off. The institutional church was, was very firm on this because they said, effectively, if we don't do this, people will then have a perfectly legitimate right to say, yes, you are not Irish. Um, sorry. Yeah, go on. Yeah, go, sorry, sorry I'm monopolising uh, uh, One of the things we're um, exploring establishing is the, the extent of the diversity within the Church of Ireland community, which yes. is very significant in a small community in terms of geographical diversity, mm. uh, in terms of uh, socio-economic diversity, mm. uh, and also in terms of political diversity. Uh, and something um, Ian mentioned there in relation to you know, the story that the Church of Ireland had of itself developed um, most uh, uh, rigorously in around 1932, the 15, mm. 1500 years since St. Patrick. If you look at the 1911 census, you'll see some people describe themselves as members of the Irish Church. Mm. and they're members of the Church of Ireland. So they're uh, establishing a story or narrative of themselves as Irish uh, and that St. Patrick uh, was not somebody who followed the Pope. And then as part of that story, the people who brought uh, Catholicism to Ireland were the Normans and the perfidious English Pope. Mm. And that's uh, also part <laughs> of... Uh, uh, I, perhaps I don't know to what extent that story or that narrative still exists today, but certainly it was actively pursued... It, yeah. um, including a lady who told a terrible fight that happened in her family. Some visiting relative who was Presbyterian announced at dinner one day, everyone knows St. Patrick was a Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> the family was like, well, I'm sure you he was not. He was a good Church of Ireland man. And this terrible fight that ensued. And this girl who had been at school, she was a school girl, and she'd been studying the Reformation. She was like, but, but there weren't any Protestants when St. Patrick was there. And she was hushed and told she had to leave the room because nobody wanted to hear it. Um, but mm. just uh, one other thing that came to mind when Ian was just talking there was the, the efforts that people went to quite consciously to become more Irish. And one of the funny stories I heard recently was a family said, I, I think it's time to take Queen Alexandra off the wall. And they took Queen Alexandra off and replaced her with a photograph of the Fine Gael cabinet. Um, <laughs> 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 which has remained there to this day. So, um, I mean, people did make a conscious decision. Also, which ancestors they'd remember. We're going to stop talking about those ones because they came over with Cromwell. And now we're going to talk about you know, these ones, because, you know, they won a medal in Irish dancing or whatever. So th but they would discuss that in the family, that we're not going to talk about that anymore, now we're going to talk about this. Mm. So. David, this, this crops up again in the article, I mean, the references to Cromwell, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, well, what sort of reference? Positive, negative? Well, are um, they, are they, no, you know? negative in general. I mean, for example, one man said, um, well, we're, we came over with Cromwell. Oh, wait a minute, is that recorder on? Wait a minute, only we don't have time to say it. Can you turn that off? No, it's okay because this is anonymous. You can leave it in, but I don't want my name mentioned. And other people saying, well, I know that on one side we came over with Cromwell, but I talk about the Quaker side because the Quakers were nice, and so I prefer to discuss them. And a lot of people saying, well, I know we came over at the time of Cromwell, but I'm sure we didn't come over with Cromwell. It was just the same year. So an awful lot of um, ambivalence about about their, their stories of, of, of origin and... Um, and uh, I found that someone said uh, we bought the f our family bought the farm of uh, Cromwellian soldier that they wanted to go back to England. I found that a couple of times. Uh, right. That they were kind of disowning Cromwell to a certain point but still yeah. Uh, yeah. get the fruits of the... Of the 
Just another point there that I think worth mentioning. One of the ladies I interviewed, uh, she would have grown up in the 1930s, 40s, and she said she couldn't get a job here because it was RC, because it wasn't RC, she said. And I went over to England then, and she said I was treated, she went and joined the forces eventually, I was treated uh, uh, very Irish, and I got, especially the Scots, she said, wouldn't speak to me because they, they assumed she was RC, Catholic Irish. And she says, of course, I didn't tell them which I was, it's none of their business, but again, she was, and I think you found that in a lot of, the, say, Anglo-Irish in the sense they're, they're a very Englishy here, and when you go over there, they're very Irish, and they yeah. thought on that no man's land. Yeah. You know. Of course, another thing is that uh, prod, for significant, because of the class business, and we haven't even really touched on that, the, sort of, mm. the, the idea of class as, as, as a marker, as distinct from religion or indeed within it, but um, Protestants, uh, a lot of Protestants, can trace their ancestry more accurately and further back. And that allows them to either, uh, uh, if they're bothered, to uh, uh, bury things or indeed to emphasise things, like, like mm -hmm. you're saying, because they actually have the knowledge. Yeah. Uh, my own family, for instance, uh, my great-granduncle got a professional firm of genealogists to, to do this in the 19, early 1920s for the Dalton family, and he gets back quite okay to, to, to 1691 um, and could go back further if, if, if necessary. But it's all there, and therefore, but it's documented because the family was Protestant. Yeah, yeah. There are church yeah. records, there are official records. We, you know, we appear in, in, in things. Uh, you know, not not very prominently. I have to I have to I have to hasten to add. We've been sliding down the social scale, starting <laughs> starting as landlords, <laughs> doctors, solicitors, and I've reached the very bottom of the thing. I ended up as an Irish public servant. So, um, <laughs> which, and could I just tell one anecdote? Because it, 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 I think it's it's quite a, it's quite an amusing one. Um, it's the antithesis of discrimination. It's where you're deferred to. I joined the Department of Finance in 1975, and in 1976, as a very young assistant principal, I got um, a summons to a very senior assistant secretary who was known in the trade as God. And so I backed, I backed into the room, or whatever you do, touching my... Well, I had a forelock then, believe it or not, so I, I was touchable. So, uh, and uh, he was a little cork man, and he peered over the edge of this enormous desk, and he said, now, come in, Mr. Dalton, says he. I have a question for you. And I said, certainly, Mr. Horgan, sir, sir, yeah, what can I do for you? You're a Protestant, aren't you? And he sort of said it in inverted commas, you know. I said, yes, yes, a member of the Church of Ireland. Now, tell me, says he, we had a budget recently. Is there a Protestant take on the budget? <laughs> so I said, Mr. Horgan, I'll ring the Archbishop of Dublin and I'll ask him. <laughs> We're nearly uh, coming to the end here. If anyone wants to ask another question, Neil. Actually, before we finish up, I, I, we, we have to discuss the badminton uh, controversy. Yeah. The late uh, Bill Hurley. Bill Hurley. Fill us in that one. It was the two, what, 2012 Olympics. Ah, uh, yeah, 2012 Olympics. Late at night. Bill is covering the uh, badminton tournament, and the Irish um, player has just defeated her Egyptian opponent. And Bill is talking to the. Representative of, the, uh, representative of the Irish Badminton Federation. And pretty soon it's clear that Bill is kind of losing interest. He doesn't know a lot about the game. So he suddenly blurts out, you know, when I was growing up, badminton was considered a Protestant game. Well, it doesn't seem to be like that anymore, does it? And uh, rabbit in the headlights uh, time for the <coughs> badminton ref. And uh, afterwards, <laughs> next day, Bill was excoriated 
for engaging in this uh, sectarian questioning uh, of the badminton rep and a complaint went to the Broadcasting Complaints uh, Commission um, and uh, there was a lot of coverage of it. Now, the point is that badminton, uh, as distinct from other games, um, or more so than other games, was more or less a game played mainly or almost exclusively by Protestants. And in fact, Protestants advertised in the Irish Times for Protestant players. So, for example, again, uh, in the 50s, 60s, the last one I saw was late 60s, early 70s, so you'd say things like um, Badminton Club, Protestant, Dartry, Tuesdays and Thursdays has vacancies for men. Also, I think uh, a woman uh, advertised herself as a uh, Protestant lady would like to play badminton. Uh, and there was... Neil, I, I, I like the one who was, uh, was a badminton club. Southside. Southside. Oh, yeah, there were... <laughs> all the badminton clubs were Southside. But that, again, is an illustration of the way in which the... Um, uh, well, the Catholic community did it as well, but the Protestant community uh, did it very well. Um, and uh, there used to be uh, complaints every now and then that they weren't doing it sufficiently well. So I think on one occasion... Um, uh, a cleric in Cork wrote about how the badminton club was run exclusively by the church and how it was um, uh, all the local youngsters were members of it uh, and that was to continue. Uh, in the late 60s, somebody wrote to the Irish Times and complained about her son not being allowed to join a, black, a badminton club because he was um, Roman Catholic. Uh, and um, uh, that is the only controversy I can ever see in relation to it. There was, of course, the Churches League in Dublin, which was an exclusively Protestant uh, soccer league. It still exists, and it, it became um, uh, it became no longer exclusively Protestant, I think, during the 1970s. But uh, one of the things that happened in the Protestant community is a lot of Protestants uh, gave up um, exclusively Protestant soccer because the standard was lower. Mm. And they started joining other clubs which didn't have a rule about whether you were what religion you were. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons, again, why this form of exclusivity uh, drifted out of uh, Irish society uh, in the late 60s uh, and early 70s. And again, I think it's something that uh, is, you know, the term hidden history is abused and used too often. But I think a lot of this, um, this history is more or less uh, misunderstood. And that accounts for the outrage that greeted. Uh, Bill O'Hurley, he would have mm. said uh, when he was growing up, it was considered a Protestant game. There's only mm. one word to answer that. Shuttlecocks. Ian was just mentioning the issue of class a little while ago. Um, a very short anecdote and then a question. Um, I'm half Irish, half English. Grew up over there, now live over here. My Irish grandmother, my Irish Catholic grandmother always told me there was no class system in Ireland unless you were Protestant. Um, and my question is, Malachy mentioned earlier that when some of the collecting he's been doing in a, a very rural area, you didn't find many differences talking about cures and so on between working class Protestants and working class Catholics. So my question is actually for Deirdre. Have you found any, the, the, the people you've been interviewing, what kind of class background is there? Protestants have historically been overrepresented in the middle classes, so I guess a higher percentage of them would be middle class than average. Ian would know more about that than me. But there is a full spectrum. I mean, there are Protestants in living in council flats in Dublin who, who um, as one lady said, they don't know that we exist. Sometimes I wonder myself, they do exist. There are working class Protestants in Dublin. There are small Protestant farmers all over the countryside. I mean, I would say there are Protestants in everywhere on the social spectrum. The percentages might be arranged differently, but they do exist everywhere on the social spectrum. It is quite tough, I think, being a, 
an inner city working class Protestant because there are numbers have become quite small and, mm -hmm. and they aren't always really very recognised. Um, one lady talked about revealing herself um, at her job as a cleaning lady in a nursing home as a Protestant and, and her colleagues all said, no, you aren't, love, because <laughs> it didn't make any sense to them that this lady who lived in a council flat with an inner city accent could also be a Protestant. And um, she, she really had to insist quite hard before they would accept that this was, in fact, true. But no, everywhere on the social spectrum, we're finding people. Um, and obviously, when it comes to folklore, it doesn't just split down along denominational lines. It also divides along class lines and regional lines. And it's, you know, it's much more complicated than just you know, two communities. It's a big, complicated jigsaw puzzle. If you want to look at a, at a, a, a literary uh, thing which illustrates it perfectly, read Sean O'Casey's Plowing the Stars, um, yeah. because he's got a working class Haradan Betty Burgess in it. Um, I, I would imagine, because he was lower middle class himself and mixed with these people, that it's probably a not inaccurate representation of somebody he actually knew or an amalgam of people he knew. Um, uh, and, of course, what screams at you is, apart from the politics, the, 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 the social and cultural attitudes uh, of Catholics and Protestants, working-class Protestants, uh, it, it's not easy to differentiate between them. Yeah. Yeah. In Badminton Union of Ireland in 1979, I was elected honorary treasurer. <laughs> so I made a break. It was a great breakthrough, apparently. I didn't realise it at the time. Just before we finish, Jerry, can you give us some idea, like, what stage is this project at, and what's, what's the, what is the, the end point of this? Or will it, will it go on forever? Well, it will go on forever, but... Um, <laughs> no, but the, the, at the moment... Like, like um, history. Yeah, like history and folklore. Um, at the moment, we have had over 400 people have written in anxious to participate. We've done, um, or I've done about 70 interviews and Chris Dorr has participated in many of them. Um, we're still, I mean, people are still sending in written material, less now than they were when we did the initial call out. And I'm still actively interviewing people. I'm going to be interviewing a number of people in this area tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Alyssa, I'm going to wrap up there, right? Yeah, Chris Dorr, yeah. Our questionnaire are at the back there. So anyone interested in uh, tackling it themselves or passing it on, um, we'd, be, we'd be very pleased. Mm -hmm. And Ian, your book, yes, that book I, I mentioned the book. Um, it, it's going to be called something like Protestant and Irish, with the and in italics, and something like the minority's place in independent Ireland. It will have 15 chapters writing about uh, individuals and institutions posh ones like Trinity. It's got Deirdre in it, um, doing a, a very valuable piece on, on, Protestant, on, on Protestant voices that are not often heard. Um, and Bad Bad badminton doesn't figure. <laughs> but you've, you've, you've raised an interesting point, as they say. I think I'm going to have to do something about that. But it will, it will try and present a, a more rounded picture of what Protestants and Protestantism was after independence and up to the 1960s when the world effectively changes for everybody. Um, and we hope to capture some of the, uh, of the voices and some of the interesting things and not just to have a dreary lit litany of, of victimhood and alienation and marginalisation. There are those elements, of course, in the Protestant story, but there are also other ones where they tried to participate and engage, and we hope to be able to show that in this book. 
So it'll be out probably sometime next year. Buy one if you find it. Thank you. <laughs> just, just, if, if you just what do you do with it? Yeah. Uh, the address, uh, our address is on it and our phone number. <clears throat> so just give, my, give myself a call. That number, it's a Dublin number, 716-8481, I think. Or uh, 716-8216. But there's an email address and a phone number there. So if you have any question, just give us a call. And we'll uh, take you to it. But we'd be very grateful for anybody, anybody willing to tackle the questionnaire. Okay, I think we've, Thanks. We've, we've all got the information. We've had the plugs here from the panel, <laughs> and so it just it leads to me to, to wrap up. Um, I think this, this is just the initial, the start of a very interesting mm. discussion, uh, and it certainly is one that we are going to come back to uh, in the, the head school, whether it be here or elsewhere. I just thank, like, our th like to thank our panel, uh, Christor McCarthy, uh, Neil Meehan, uh, Ian Dalton, Deirdre Nuttall and uh, Maliki Hand, and I'd like to thank you, the audience, in particular those people who participated in the discussion. Uh, next History Iron Head School will be in Bundorn uh, on Saturday the 30th of September, and it'll be looking at the 60th anniversary of the last train uh, into uh, Bundorn. I wasn't on it, actually, I have to say, although I, I, I did live up the road in Ballyshannon, so maybe I might see some of you there, uh, or see you back here. I'm sure we, we'll be back here uh, not before too long. So thank you very much, everybody. And, and just before you head off, ladies and gentlemen, can I thank Tommy Graham, who um, was an excellent chairman, head school master. Tommy, thank you very, very much for a most fantastic night. Uh, can I just ask and thank Michael? Michael, thanks very much for the sound. It was fantastic. And can I wish you all a, a safe journey home? Our next event here is next Friday night for Culture Night. Uh, we have a band from Galway playing here. They're called Vickers Vimy. They were here before. They were brilliant. And it's a, a free night. So you're more than welcome to come back and see us next Friday night. And thanks again to everybody and for the Hedge School and from History Ireland. There's copies of History Ireland on the way out. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.